Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Grace Bible Church, and it's my pleasure to worship with you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 10. We have, uh, over the past year, been walking our way slowly through the book of John, and we are, at, after today, we'll be about the halfway mark. And uh, what we've seen since we got back into it at the beginning of this summer was we, we've seen that Jesus has been in what's called the Feast of Tabernacles cycle. So this is when Jesus went up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. So, so there's from chapter 7 through halfway through chapter 10, uh, there is one long episode of Jesus being in Jerusalem, talking with, the, talking with the people in Jerusalem and the Jews there and teaching in the temple and whatnot. And he's been using the, the language of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's been using the imagery, the, the religious celebration that happens in the Feast of Tabernacles to refer to himself. So he's been using that, those things as object lessons, trying to point back to himself. And we get into this section, and, and, and we're out of the Feast of Tabernacles section, but we're going to see Jesus does something very similar with the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah. you got to get the Chet in there, that nice Hebrew Chet. Uh, we'll see if we do a Hebrew class once we're done with the Greek class. But you got to get the Chet in there, so Hanukkah. And uh, we see that Jesus is going to do something very similar. And this passage really carries on a lot of the same imagery. So even though it's a different event, this is several months removed from the last event. In many ways, this is kind of continuing the dialogue that Jesus has already been had and continuing some of the shepherd imagery uh, that we've seen. And so there's a little bit of mixing of metaphors here this morning, but it's all, it's all one continuous passage from verses 22 down through 42. So I'm, I'm going to read that and then we'll get into into it. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, is it, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you not say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, some of your translations say sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And, he, and many believed in him there. 
Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would make your word come alive to us. You say, my sheep hear my voice. Your son says, my sheep hear my voice. Would we hear your voice? Would we hear the word of your son? And in that, would we find life? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Yesterday, about 6.50, I, I woke up and I was lying in bed and I thought, I should probably get up before my son gets up so that I can get a start on the day and, you know, get settled. And then while I was still having this conversation with myself, I hear his door creak open. <laughs> so I go get my son and I uh, get him and the, the dogs are waiting for an- anxiously to go out. And so I let them out into the, the wind and the rain and, and they get swallowed by a fish. But... And uh, my my son and I, we're, we're getting ready. I'm getting him settled. I'm making coffee, you know, the usual thing. And about 20 or 30 minutes pass by, and I realize my dogs are still outside in the in the rain. So I go and go to go let them in. And they're just huddled there, kind of bedraggled looking, very resigned to the fact that they are waiting outside, waiting to get in. And many of us, we go through life that way, waiting to get in bedraggled. Uh, Martin Luther once said, uh, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Many of us, we go through our life waiting outside, and maybe you were here last week, and you, you hear, heard the, the discussion of the relationship between the father and the son, and, and between the, the sheep as this tender, intimate relationship, and you're, you're waiting outside. You say, how do I get into the pen? If there's this relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, how can I find my way in? And I would contend that most of us, with most of the things that we do in life, most of the decisions that we make are looking for a way in. We are looking for God. Uh, A quote that's often attributed to C.S. Lewis, although it actually was said by a, a Scottish novelist, first is, every man who goes into a brothel is looking for God. Most of us, when we are the deepest longings of our heart, that we're trying to fill them, when we're trying to fill them with all kinds of things that will, that will never satisfy us, that will never produce uh, life for us, that will never bring us into abundant life. And Jesus this morning is going to show us how we can come in, how we can find life, how we can meet the good shepherd. Now, I've got to say this just to help us understand this. How many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody where they asked you a question and you went on a long explanation, but you didn't answer their question. (laughs) If any of you have ever been in a conversation with me, you know that I do that. That is what is happening here. So maybe you're, you're looking, especially in verse 24, it says, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus goes on this long, beautiful discourse that seems like it has absolutely nothing to do with the question that they're asking him. It does, but it just seems like it's a long tangent. Uh, See, the Jews are playing on one field this morning. They're playing on one level, one plane, and Jesus is on a whole other plane. He's having a whole different conversation. See, in the midst of their accusations, Jesus is offering an invitation to come in and to come and find warmth and to be dried off and to find rest for their souls. We'll see this morning that some of them do that. So this morning, there are two, two big sections. One is the sheep and the shepherd, the sheep and the shepherd, and the second is meeting the shepherd, meeting the shepherd. So first is the sheep and the shepherd, the, the relationship, what is the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, and what is the, how does one meet the shepherd? How does one come into the pen? 
So we see in this passage that Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. That's about two months after the Feast of Tabernacles. As we've already said, that is the, um, the festival of Hanukkah. Well, it's actually very relevant, but we'll talk about that why later. And it, it's winter. And I just want to point this out between verse 22 and verse 23. It says, it was winter and Jesus wa- was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It's an interesting detail. Colonnade of Solomon is on the east side of the temple. Why does it matter? Everybody knows Hanukkah, Hanukkah takes place in winter. What, why, why does he say in the colonnade? What, what's going on there? This is a detail that probably would not be in this story if it was not an eyewitness account. Because in winter, the eastern part of the temple of Jerusalem was warmer than the western side. So why is Jesus walking in the colonnade of Solomon? Because it's warmer. Why is he doing that? Because it's winter. It's an eyewitness detail. This, this testifies to the veracity of, of the Gospel of John. So Jesus is walking, and the Jews encircle him. It says that they gathered around him, and they said, Tell us plainly, how long will you keep us in suspense? Uh, the Greek literally says, How long will you hold our soul up in the air? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And of course, by the Christ, what, what do they mean? They mean the one who's going to come and establish the kingdom here on earth. They're looking for a political savior, a political hero, someone who can establish an earthly kingdom and set it up, someone who can uh, meet all of their earthly demands. That's what they're asking. They're, and they're not even asking if Jesus is that person. They're, they're kind of asking if Jesus thinks he's that person. As we've already seen, they're, they're, looking, they're almost looking for a way to have conflict with Jesus. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Now maybe you say, well, where does Jesus tell them? Well, chapter 1, and chapter 2, and chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5, and chapter 6, and chapter 7, and chapter 8, and chapter 9. And then after chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, in virtually every chapter in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things to this effect. So Jesus is like, have you not been paying attention? Is there, like, what is wrong with you? And so Jesus says, I, how many times do I have to have this conversation with you? The works that I do in my Father's name, the works that I'm doing, the signs that I'm doing, we've seen that phrase throughout the Gospel of John, they bear witness about me, and you do not believe. I've told you, and you do not believe. So why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? Well, because they're not his sheep. Because one of the attributes of the sheep of Jesus, and we see here he continues on the language from last week, is that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. The sheep trust the shepherd. They believe in the shepherd. They have faith in the shepherd. So he says, you do not believe because you're not from my sheep. And again, notice how Jesus is here pointing out his ownership over the sheep. The shepherd owns the sheep. They are his, and he is theirs. There's a, a, a covenantal relationship between them. He says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep know my voice. Why do my sheep know my voice? Because I know them. Because I personally care for them, and I hear their concerns and their prayers, and I, I, I guide them to still waters. I, I bring them to green pastures. I know them, and they follow me. They follow me through the valley of the shadow of death. They follow me when there seems to be no sense. They, they go where I lead. We talked about this last week a little bit, but, but in, the, in Western shepherding traditions, uh, shepherding takes place from behind. 
So you use a, a sheep, you use sheep dogs in a pickup truck and you drive the sheep from behind. But in the Middle East, when, when they would shepherd then and still today, they'd lead from the front. And they've trained the sheep so that when the shepherd calls out, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. So much so that if three or four shepherds put their sheep into a common pen and then it's time for them to, to leave, the three or four shepherds will stand in different places and they'll call out and the, the sheep will follow their distinctive voice. Why? Because the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. The sheep know who it is who they're following. The sheep listen to the shepherd. They, they know him. It's not that they don't hear the voice of other shepherds. It's that they hear the voice of that shepherd and say, that's my shepherd. I know that I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life. That like, a, like the gate of the pen, that they come out and in through me and I lead them into still waters and I lead them beside green pastures that I provide for their soul and they will be satisfied. I give them eternal life. And then he says this, and they will never perish. They'll never perish. That life that I give them will last forever. It, it will never fade away. And the question is, why? Why is it that the life that Jesus gives will never perish? Well, because no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, I hold on to my sheep. I don't let go of them. I don't let anyone take them from me. The wolf comes, I chase the wolf off. The false shepherds come, I chase the false shepherds off. They're my sheep, and no one's going to take them from me. We talked about this last week. He loves his sheep so much that he lays down his life for them. And if any of you were a shepherd and you wanted to lay down your life for your sheep, if they were coming, there a wolf coming and, and you had the choice between saving your life and saving your sheep and you said, I'm going to save my sheep, we would say you probably care about your job just a little bit too much. This is a, a shepherd who goes above and beyond in his duty and his obligation to his sheep. This is a shepherd who goes above and beyond his relationship with his sheep. He loves his sheep and he cares for them. And no one ever snatches them out of his hand. Why does he care about his sheep so much? Why does he care about his sheep so much? Well, verse 29 tells us, My Father who has given them to me. Why, why does Jesus care so much about his sheep? Because they were given to him by the Father. Jesus, I don't lose, I'm not in the business of losing things the Father's given me. When the Father gives me a sheep, I hold on to it because I love my Father. I care too much about my relation with, relationship with my Father to throw that sheep away. I care too much about who my Father is to let go of those ones. That when the Father gives me a sheep, I keep it. And that Father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Why is no one able to snatch them out of the Father's hand? Because the Father has given them to the Son. The Father's not going to let go of sheep that He's going to give to the Son. He's not going to say, Son, here's these sheep. I don't want anything to do with them. The Father's not going to say, Here's these sheep. Whoops, I lost one. The Father's not going to say, Here's these sheep. Go out and find them yourself. No, when the father gives his sheep to the son, the father ensures that those sheep will never wander away finally. 
Christian, your relationship with God, your eternity is secure because it's caught in the middle of the love relationship between the Father and the Son before eternity passed. And as unbreakable as that relationship is, that is how unlosable your salvation is. Your salvation depends a lot more on it than if you used a four-letter word after you hammered your hand. Your salvation depends upon the eternal love that the Father has for the Son and the eternal love that the Son has for the Father, and that is unbreakable. It's inexhaustible. It will never run out. It will never perish. It will only get brighter and brighter as eternity burns on, and therefore your eternity is safe in His hands. He does not let go of His sheep. He does not abandon His people. That he does not let them. Yes, they may wander for a time, but he will go and find them and bring them into his pen. And they will be one flock and one shepherd. This is what we, we saw this earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. That the Father and the Son have this relationship with one another before time began. And part of the compact, the covenant, the the relationship that they have with one another is to give each other. The Son promises to give the Father perfect obedience. And the Father promises to give the Son a people. It's what we call the covenant of redemption. That our salvation was bought and sold for, bought and paid for, in a sense, before eternity began. That's why Jesus is said to be the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. That this was God's plan from all along to give the Son a people and for the Son to give the Father his perfect obedience. And our salvation rests secure because the Father and the Son keep their word to one another. They do not go back on their promises towards one another. Which means this. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's talking about a lot more than we agree on this. Right? He's saying, we, when he says, I and the Father are one, he's saying a lot more than saying that, that, that we're one in purpose. If both of them existed from before eternity began, and both of them have the power to keep you and I from falling away forever, then both of them have divinity. Now notice here, he doesn't say, I and the Father are the same. He doesn't say that we're the same person. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. In other words, we, we share the same godness. Now, we read it a moment ago in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, but whenever the Hebrew Bible speaks of the one true God, whenever the New Testament calls God one, it's referencing the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And there are various times in the New Testament that, that the author's insert Jesus into the Shema. That now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has become incarnate, now that Jesus lived among us and died for our sins and risen again up to the, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, we cannot understand the Shema the same way again. 
Because that Shema, the one true God, contains within it the, both the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So when Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one, he's making a very specific ontological claim. He's making a very specific claim that I am the one true God. That, that, that God from the Shema, that, that's me. He's making a very specific claim. Paul does the same thing in uh, 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, this case has been very convincingly argued for by uh, a German scholar with a nice German name, Andreas Kirstenberger, and by Richard Baucom. Two, the two, those two scholars, by the way, do not agree on much, but they agree on this, that when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's referencing the Shema, which means this about the one true God. He will not be known in the abstract. He will not be known as a theory. He will not be assented to as an intellectual fact. He will be known as a personal God, as a covenantal God, as a God who binds himself to himself, as a God who gives himself for his sheep. See, it's not enough to believe in God as a concept. We must know God as son. And know the God, know God as Father. This is what Jesus is saying. So you can see why when the Jews come to him and say, "Are you the Christ?" Jesus, and Jesus, who knows what they're thinking, says, "That word that you're saying it does not mean what you think it means. I am the Christ, but you don't understand exactly how I am the Christ." I'm the Son of God, the eternal only begotten God of God from before time began. The God who's been consecrated and sent into the world. As he'll say later, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In that way, he's the Christ, the anointed one, the one who's come to save his people from their sins. And if we're going to call him Christ, we have to mean that too. And so Jesus paints this relationship between the Father and the Son and between the, the Son and the people and the, the shepherd and the sheep. And he's drawing together so many of these things that we've already seen in the Gospel of John. And he has not answered the question the way the Jews were expecting. But he's answered it in a way that to them seems blasphemous. And so they go to stone him, and yet in the midst of this conflict from verses 31 down through 39, Jesus gives them an invitation to come in, to come in and meet this one true God. So even though they are trying to attack him and put him to death, he is trying to offer to them eternal life. We see this happen, starting in verse 31, it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, and he'll continue to show them good works. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, is it true that Jesus, being a man, does make himself God? Yes, we just saw that a minute ago. It would only be blasphemy if it wasn't true. So Jesus says this in verse 34, and it almost seems like a cop-out, but it's not. He's trying to help them clarify exactly what they're accusing him of. Jesus is trying to say, you're accusing me of this, but I just want you to think clearly about what it is that you're accusing me of. 
says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law in the Old Testament? I said, you are gods. Now that's a quote from the book of Psalms, Psalm 82, verse 6. And in that psalm, it's talking about the superiority of the one true God compared to all others. And it uses the word gods to refer to, some people think it's idols, or some people think it's demons, some people think it's the kings of men. It doesn't really matter, because it does use the word gods to refer to things which are not the one true God. So when Jesus says in verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, he's saying, you know, the Old Testament language refers to the divine as things that are not gods, but it very clearly asserts that there is one in a class that is unique and of his own, of his own worth, that he is the one true God, the God of the Shema. He's saying, when you say that I make myself God, do you know which one I'm making myself? Do you know where I'm locating myself? Am I locating myself as, the, as one of these other, as one of these demons or a prince among men, or am I locating myself as the one true God? And then he says this, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, then scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom, in this phrase, it's so easy to miss it, and yet it is the key to this passage says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, and that word is often translated as sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, I want you to look at that. Look at that one word, consecrated. Some of your translations say sanctified. You'll remember we said at the beginning of this time that this is during the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication when they dedicated a new altar to the Lord. You see, what happened in the Feast of Hanukkah that they celebrated was they celebrated the independence of the Jewish people from the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV was the the head of one of these kingdoms that followed Alexander the Great. He's the head of the Seleucid Empire. And what happened was the Seleucid Empire went to war with another one of these kingdoms that followed um, the Ptolemaic kingdom, which is essentially Egypt. And the uh, Seleucids were beginning to win. And one of the ways that they won is they gained control over Israel. Before, Israel had actually belonged to the, the, king, the Greeks who ruled over Egypt at that time, the Ptolemies. And, 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 the Greek, and so they had actually, they had pretty much let Israel do whatever it wanted. But when the Seleucids came and they took over the, the land of what we today call Palestine, Israel, uh, the, the Seleucids um, did not allow the Jewish people to continue to worship the God of the Bible. Now here's where it gets interesting. They tried to stamp out the worship of the one true God. And one of the ways that they did that is they sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. And when the Jews basically kicked the Seleucids out, when they, when they won their war of independence, one of the things that they celebrated in the Feast of Hanukkah was the addition, is the rededication of the altar, of placing a new altar in Jerusalem. Now, this is a very interesting fact about an altar. Now, most of us know, probably, if we don't, that's okay. In the Old Testament, um, there, the temple and tabernacle had an innermost sanctum called the Holy of Holies that the high priest was only to enter into once a year. And there's supposed to be this separation between God and man that, that man was not allowed into the presence of God because God was that holy. But that phrase, Holy of Holies, was also used to describe something else in the temple structure. 
It's often not translated this way in, the, in your English Bible just to help it distinguish it, but it's the same phrase. It was actually also used to, um, to describe the altar where atonement was made for the sins of Israel. Because the only other place other than the Holy of Holies where, the, where God would meet his people was in the sacrifice of atonement. When the high priest would come and they would make atonement for the sins of Israel. That's where the Holy of Holies was. That's, that's where God would meet with his people, not only in the inner sanctum, but where sin was dealt with. Now, listen to this. When Jesus says that I am the son at the festival of dedication, when they're rededicating the altar every year, says, I am the son who's been consecrated and sanctified and sent into the world. And by the way, the father is in me and I am in the father. He's using the language of the altar to refer to himself. He's using the language of the altar. He's saying, just like, the, just like God would meet his people at this atonement for sin, so now God will meet his people in me. And what do you do on an altar? You make a sacrifice. You atone for sins. One thing dies for another. A sheep dies for its people. A lamb is slain to wipe away the sins of the people of God. And Jesus says, yards away from that altar, I'm the one who's been dedicated and sanctified and sent into the world. Leading forward to his own death. You see, What Jesus is saying is no longer will the sheep be sacrificed for the shepherd, but now the shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. No longer will God meet his people at a place, but in a person. No longer will you come into the flock by going to Jerusalem, but rather you will come to the flock through me. When Jesus says, I am the altar, he's combining all of, these, all of this language because God would meet his people in the sacrifice for sins and God would meet his people in the Son and God meets his people on the cross. Question, how can I enter into his flock? How can I meet the good shepherd? You meet the good shepherd when he meets you on Golgotha. When he meets you on that cross, on those two on those two splintered boards of wood under those rusty nails. That's where God meets you and you meet God. How can I enter into his flock? How can I come in from the storm? How can I go from being a goat to being a sheep? The only way is when the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Where do we meet God? We meet God when he meets us on the cross. When Jesus says, if I am not doing the works of my father, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, in other words, if I do the works of my father, even though you don't believe my words, believe the works. What is the greatest work that the son does in the gospel of John? It's dying for the sins of his people. It's being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where can you and I meet 
the Father? Where can you and I meet the Son? Where can you and I meet the Good Shepherd and enter into that place and find life? Only in the death of Christ. Only in the death of Christ. And of course, they seek to arrest him, but he escapes from their hands and he goes away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. Notice the word sign again. But everything that John said about this man was true. What did John call him? There goes the Lamb of God who bore, who takes away the sin of the world. And many believed in him there. Of course, we'll see the relevance of this all for, the, the, for next week, why he geographically went across the Jordan. But if we could turn to apply this passage, let me just say this. God wants you to meet him. God wants you to meet him. God does not want to, to be a deistic deity who starts the world spinning and walks away. God wants to be met. He wants to be known. And the way that he's made for us to meet him, the place that he's made for us to meet him, is, on no, is in no other place than in Christ. And it's at no other place than in Golgotha. God wants you to meet him. Number two, God will not be known as an abstract deity apart from the world. He will not be known as a concept. God will not be known out there somewhere. He will not be intellectually assented to. He'll only be believed and trusted as a personal God as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He'll only be believed and known and trusted as, as the God who goes to meet his people, who comes down and joins his people here on earth. God will only be known, only be known in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Number three, the only way to draw near to him on the cross the only way that you and I can have our sins washed away, put into the bottom of the sea, nailed into his hands, is by approaching him by faith. Notice here that how often the word believe shows up in this passage. It's the same word for faith, for having faith. It says you do not believe. But you do not believe. It says if you don't believe my words, believe my deeds. Of course, the, the Gospel of John, even, uh, this chapter even ends, and many believed in him there. The purpose of the Gospel of John is these things are written so that you might believe, and that by believing might have life in his name. You and I cannot approach the cross with something to barter and something to trade. God will never be impressed with how many good things that we do. The fact that we would even try to compare our good deeds with the one deed that he did on the cross is repulsive to him. We must come, as the old song says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Christians, you and I must approach him by faith alone and Christ alone. Number four. Jesus says, I know my sheep. 
I know my sheep. I know them intimately. I care for them. I know their needs and their concerns. I know the things that keep them awake at night. I know their anxieties, their fears. I know how and when they might be overconfident. I know my sheep. You and I often say with a measure of truth to other people, you don't know me. But we dare not take that mentality before the Son of God. Because he says, I know my sheep. I know them. Which, which means that you and I must be known. And what I mean by that is, if he knows his sheep, if he cares for their concerns, and he, he wants to give them life, then we ought not dilly-dally in asking him to care for us. He already knows our concerns. He already knows our cares. And why wouldn't we take advantage of that? What sheep, when it needs some food, is going to run away from its shepherd? What sheep, when it needs to be protected, is going to run towards the wolf? Christians, you and I as sheep must draw near to the shepherd. We must not run away from him. We must run to him. Be known. I'd also say that he says, my sheep hear my voice. It's because they have heard it enough that they're trained to listen to it. And I would ask you, have you listened to his voice enough that you're trained to listen to it? Have you disciplined yourself by spending time in the word and devoting yourself to to the knowledge of the word of God? Have you made excuses about why you can't be in scripture instead of getting into scripture? You know, we, we say here, it's not so much how much you read in any one setting, how much you're capable of reading, but rather what, what we're interested in is if it's a habit. Because the reality is, if it's a habit, if, if it's something that you're working on, of course you're going to be able to read more. Think about it this way. How many of us, and I know there's a handful of exceptions, so if you're an exception, you know it, so don't say anything, but how many of us would go out and run a marathon today? Not me. If we are to run a marathon, we have to train for it. Christians, if we are to know the word of God, it means that we must train ourselves in it. It means that we must spend time getting to know it, devote ourselves to it, give ourselves to it, that we must eat it like the daily bread that it is. This also means six or seven. That we should follow him. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If you are his sheep, you ought to follow him. What I mean by that is you ought to trust him enough that when he says, go, here you go. The reality is all of us are going to come to decision points in our life where we see the shepherd leading us into the valley of the shadow of death, where we see the shepherd leading us into situations which might cause uh, loss in our lives, which might test us. Jesus says, come. Come. This is the way to life. This is the way to abundant life. This is the way to green pastures. 
It was a way to still waters. And if we're his sheep, we must follow him. We must be willing to embrace the loss. We must be willing to follow him into the valley of the shadow of death, knowing, knowing that he'll protect us, knowing that what he has for us on the other side is better. We must be willing to trust him enough that he knows what he's doing. That his way is better and his word is truer. I, I was reading um, this week the, the story of Polycarp, the, the bishop Polycarp, who, who uh, was eventually martyred for his faith. And he was, a, he was an old man and he was dragged before the, the uh, Roman governor of the city. The Roman, or, Roman governor saw that he was, he was an old man and he, he begged him. He said, consider your old age that you could die in peace. Don't make me put you to death. Don't make me put you in the arena. Don't make me put you. Just all you have, you don't even have to say it. You don't even have to mean it. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said, Some 82 years I've walked with my Savior, and he has never once let me down. How can I deny him now? Christians, if we are his sheep, if we've met him in the cross, if we've followed him, we must be willing to embrace the cost to get the gain. We must be willing to follow him into the arena. To be willing to take a bold step for our faith. Maybe that just means sharing the gospel with somebody. Maybe that means doing something that's really uncomfortable. Maybe that means starting a new habit. Maybe that means confronting somebody who's in sin. Christians, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are you following him? Are you trusting him? Are you obeying him? Finally, Jesus says, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And no one will ever snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you, if you are here this morning and you are worried that the winds and the waves are going to pick you up and take you somewhere else, and you're worried that the ground is going to fall out underneath you and the sky is going to cave in on top of you, if you're, if you're worried that you, you've done something that he would never hold on to you after, if you're, if you're worried that he would possibly get tired of you and let you go, if he'd worried that you, maybe because you have betrayed him, he would betray you. If you're fearful and the irrational part of your brain says, I know he always holds on to others, but he might let go of you. Hear these words. No one will snatch them out of my hand because I don't lose those things that the Father has given me. My Father doesn't lose those ones who he's given to me. Christians, you and I ought to rest in that promise today. Father in heaven, 
we thank you that you do not let us go. That your son has purchased us at the cost of his own blood. Father, we thank you that you have given us to the son and we can never be pried out of his hands. And no one will ever pry us out of your hands. Father, we thank you that you give us hard things to say yes to to sometimes. We pray for us that you would help us to act like sheep and not act like goats. To listen to your voice. To hear your call. To follow you into those dark places. Knowing that life and abundant life is offered on the other side. Father, would you help us to trust you when the winds and waves are around us? Would you help us to hold on to the one who holds us and to never let him go because he will never let us go. Amen.